Okay, friends, we'll be looking at that uh, passage this morning, those 11 verses, so please keep your Bibles open. We're going to pray and ask God for his help in understanding his word to us this morning. So let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're a speaking God, that your word is powerful and you speak to us today through your living word. And so as we consider these words from Peter, we pray that you'll convict our hearts, help us to change as we need to, help us to recognise where our sins are and help us to love you more. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now friends, do you know of anyone who once claimed to be a Christian but they are no longer following Jesus? They no longer trust in Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. Friends, do you know anyone who have fallen away from the faith? Now, I suspect that you do. I suspect that you know people in your lives, those whom you grew up with, those you went to Sunday school with, have fun at youth group with, went to church with, but they no longer believe Jesus. They no longer follow Jesus as their own Lord and Saviour. And these might be your good friends. These might even be those in your family. It's a sad fact, isn't it? That those who claim to be a Christian, not not all of them will in fact make it to the end. There are people who fall away. It's a very sad fact, isn't it? Because what is it that these people miss out on? If they turn their backs on Jesus, what do they miss out on? Well, they miss out on the hope of eternal life. They miss out on the life that extends beyond the grave. They miss out on the life now where they can live depending totally and utterly on God as their Heavenly Father. They miss out on a life now where they can cast all their burdens and worries and anxieties on the Lord. And so when you come to think about that, why would anyone turn their backs on Jesus? Why would anyone stop persevering as a Christian? Why would anyone turn away from something that is so good? But you see, it happens. Doesn't it? It happens. And I'm sure you know people in your lives who no longer claim Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. And that's because there are pressures all around us. See, the pressures of studies, the pressures of work, the pressures of career, the pressures of finances, the pressures of keeping up with, we won't say the Joneses because there are Joneses, the pressures of keeping up with the Smith, the pressures of pleasing ourselves, the pressures of pleasing those around us, the pressures from society. These things divert our attention and our focus away from the Lord Jesus. They divert our our attention away from eternal life, from the things of heaven. And that's why, if you're not aware of this, that is why the church, in fact, has quite a low retention rate. not sure if you're aware of this. The church, in fact, has quite a low retention rate. Now, I checked out some statistics. Some figures have it at 60%. That is, what percentage of youth do you think will end up falling away? The percentage of youth who go to church will end up falling away. Well, some stats have it at 60%. Some stats have it even at 70%. A more conservative figure, it's still 50%. And so think about that. For our church, there are about 40 youth who come along here in the now and then, 50%. 20 of them will one day deny Christ. One day they will be indifferent towards Jesus. One day Jesus is no longer their Lord and Saviour. And when their life ends, they are no longer a Christian. Shocking, isn't it? 
50%. The church has a low retention rate. Now, as shocking as those stats are, they are shocking, aren't they? But as shocking as they are, there is some truth in them. Now, some of you may have heard me share this story before, but I'm just considering my own youth group when I was a teenager. There were 10 of us who went along to youth group. Now, about, what is it, 20 years later, there are probably only about three, maybe four, who are still church-going. That's more than 50% who have turned away, 60 even 70% who have turned away. Those who remain, it's Yvonne, my brother, myself, and, and perhaps my cousin. Three or four out of ten. The church has a low retention rate. And so I want to encourage us as a church family, what can we do? What can we do this year, 2014, to make sure that none of us, none of us here, none of us, none of those in our family will fall away. None of our friends will fall away. None of those little ones, those in Christ, those in Sunday school, those in youth group will fall away. What can we do to ensure that all of us will persevere right to the very end? Well, that's why we're looking at this passage. The Apostle Peter helps us to see what we can do. What can we do to persevere? Well, he tells us three things. Firstly, the Apostle Peter here, he reminds us who we are. That is, who we are in Christ. What are our benefits, our privileges in Christ. Secondly, the Apostle Peter here reminds us says, that the God who calls us, the God who calls us to faith, to salvation, also keeps us, also equips us. That's the second thing. The God who calls us equips us to live the life of faith. And thirdly, Peter here reminds us that we who are called, we who are called to faith in Christ, well, we must, must continue to grow. We must always be growing. And if we remember these things and put these things into practice, then none of us will fall away. That is the promise at the end of this passage. None of us will fall away. And so let's have a look at this passage. So Peter here firstly reminds who we are who we are as Christians, who we are in Christ. Now, Peter, in this letter, like any ancient letter, he introduces himself first. He calls himself a servant of the Lord Jesus. And that's to say that Jesus is his Lord, his master, his king, and that his life is given over completely to this king. He serves this king. And he also tells us here that he is an apostle. Now, the word apostle just means the one who is sent sent out. Now, being an apostle of the Lord Jesus means that it was Jesus who sent him out and Jesus commissioned him in the work of the gospel. So, who was Peter writing to in this letter? Have a look at verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. So who was Peter writing to? Well, he's writing to those who have a faith as precious as Peter's. You see, Peter recognised that he has the authority as the apostle. He's unique. He comes with the authority of Jesus. He writes with the authority of Jesus. But yet he recognises that the faith he has is the faith that is shared by all Christians. Christians then, Christians throughout the ages and Christians today, us. We all share in the same precious faith 
as the Apostle Peter. We are no less Christian. We share in the same benefits. So what Peter had, we have as well. And now verse 2, he greets them. He says, Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now often when we read the epistles, the letters, we read this greeting in passing. But you see, this greeting is filled with meaning. Just consider it. You see, not everyone gets to enjoy the grace of God. Not everyone gets to have the favour of God, God's pleasure. Not everyone gets to enjoy peace with God. You see, we tend to think everyone has peace with God. No, that's not the case at all. It's only some. You see, grace and peace with God are reserved for those who are called by him. Grace and peace with God are reserved for the Christians. You see, this grace and peace comes through knowing God. Now, this is not knowing God in the sense of knowing that God exists, knowing about God, but it's knowing God relationally, having a relationship with God. And when we come to know God, we enjoy grace and peace with him. And so in this first section, the greeting, Peter reminds us, this is who you are. You are Christians. You share in the same precious faith as me. You enjoy grace and peace with God. You can persevere. You must make it to the end. Now, Peter moves on. In the second bit, he reminds us now that the one who calls us, the God who calls us, also equips us. That is, the one who calls us to faith, the one who calls us to salvation, will also equip us to live the life of faith. Now, as a side point, it's important to recognise here that in Scripture, the, the language of calling is not it's not used in the way we often hear of it. Often we hear of the language of calling in terms of vocation, being called to a job, being called to some vocation, being called to be an, an accountant, being called to be an engineer or even being called into ministry. We tend to use the language of calling that way. But when you consider scripture, the scriptures carefully, scripture uses the language of calling to something far greater. Our calling is far greater than our vocation. Our calling is far more important. You see, our calling is about our salvation. Our calling is about our godly living. That is our calling. You see, and this is what we'll see in this passage. And if you think about it, in the ancient world, people didn't have a choice about their vocation. They just did what their parents did. Tends to be a more modern invention that our calling is about our vocation. No, it is about salvation. It is about godly living. And so here Peter reminds us that the one who calls us will also equip us. And he will equip us with his power. He will equip us with his power and he will motivate us with his promises. You see, when God calls us to be Christians, he doesn't leave us to our own devices so that we can survive on our own. He equips us. It's a bit like, for example, when I taught Esther to ride her bike. I didn't say to Esther, look Esther, I, I bought you the bike, now you go ride, learn on your own and don't fall and make sure you ride well. You see, that's not how, how I did it. Instead I had to help her along, I had to use my powers, I had to run along with her, you know, with a saw back holding the saddle and help her balance and pedal at the same time until she could balance and pedal on her own. That's what I have to do. 
uh, to help her along the way. And not only that, I, I gave her the promise. I said, if you ride well, you will ride with me one day. How good is that? And so I have I had to help her along. And in a sense, that's what God has done. God calls us, but he also equips us with his power. With the power of God, he equips us to live out the Christian life. And so this is what we see in verse 3. Have a look. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. You see, Christians, we have nothing less than the power of God working in us, giving us all we need to live this life, to persevere to the end, to never fall away and to live the godly life that God demands. And we're told here that this is through knowing God. Remember, in in scriptures, the word know is not just in the sense of the cognitive knowing, to know about God. You see, in scriptures, the word know is a very intimate word. It's a relational knowing. It is knowing God personally. It's a bit like how I know Yvonne. You see, I don't just know about Yvonne. I don't just know that Yvonne was born in August, she's older than me, she studied at Melbourne Uni, that she likes baking and she has three kids. I just don't know about her. I actually know her relationally, intimately. And that is what Peter's saying here. We are to know God. Know him relationally. And when we know him relationally, that is powerful. That will help us persevere and live our life of faith. You see, to know God, to know that he is my master, he is my saviour, the one who saved me, he is my king, the one I live for and obey, that actually helps me get through life. And it's powerful. It equips me to persevere to the end because he is my saviour, He is my king and he is also my father. You see, if I know God, that he is my father, just imagine how powerful that is. In fact, if I think about it, I can't imagine life not knowing God, how uncertain it will be, how distressing it will be because I've got no one to fall back on. But if God is my father and I know him, all my cares and anxieties can be cast onto him and I know that he will be looking out for me. And this is why, I'm not sure if you've seen and experienced this in your life, I suspect that this is why Christians can persevere through the toughest trials. Christians can persevere through the deepest heartbreak. Why? Because they know God. Because they know God as their father. I mean, just think about our own church family, our own congregation here. Just think about those who have been through such tough and hard times. You know, those coping with lost ones, those coping with illnesses and health issues, coping with the stresses and pressures of life. How can you persevere? How do these brothers and sisters persevere? It's because they know God. They know God as their Heavenly Father, God who empowers them and God who promises them that at the end they will be there with God. See, the one who calls also equips. But you see, that's not all. God equips us with his power, but he also equips us and motivates us with his great promises, his precious promises. Look at verse 4. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. 
You see, God's promises gives us hope. It helps us persevere because we actually know where we're ending, where we're heading. We don't live life aimlessly, you see. We know where our end will be. You see, the promise from God is that we will one day share and participate in his divine nature. Now, what does that mean? To share in the divine nature of God. But that is to say we will be like God one day. We'll be like God in character. Now just imagine a world where everyone is like God. A world where everyone is as righteous and holy and honest and loving and caring and just as God. What a good world that would be. What a perfect world that would be. You know, a world where there is no more pain, no more hurt, no injustices, no tears, no death. What a world that would be. But you see, that's the promise of God. You will share in that world. You persevere, that's the promise for you. And so how can we persevere as Christians, make it to the end, not fall away, while we remember who we are? We share in the grace and peace with God. And we also remember this, the one who calls us still equips us, equips us to live our life of faith. Now Peter moves on in this last section and he reminds us that we who are called, we are called to saving faith, called to salvation, while we are the one who must continue to grow. You see, we respond by growing, by showing and bearing fruit. You see, we who are called to faith, called to salvation, we can't be complacent. We can't be lazy Christians. We can't be idle Christians, but we must grow, grow in our faith, grow in our godliness, grow in our fruitfulness. This is how we respond to what God has done for us. These are the fruits that show that our faith is real. And so have a look at what Peter says in verses 5 to 7 now. Peter makes this clear. For this very reason, make every effort. You see, this is our response now. We've heard about what God has done. This is our response. Make every effort, that is, all our energy, Directed to this. And what is, what is this? Well, it's to add to your faith goodness. You see, faith saves us, but faith is never alone. Genuine faith always bears good works, always bears fruit. And so we are to add to our faith goodness, the goodness of character. And to goodness, what do we add? We add knowledge. You see, Christianity is not a blind religion. We're not brainwashing. In fact, you're meant to use your minds. You're meant to use your brains. We are to grow in our knowledge, and this is knowledge not only of God, knowledge and discernment in how we live, what is right and good, what is evil and wrong. And then to knowledge we add self-control. Self-control. I think this is one of the hardest ones to get right. Having a family with three young kids, three young kids are very testing. Self-control, I need to remember that all the time. But we need to be self-controlled and growing in our self-control. And to self-control, we add perseverance. Real Christians don't give up. When we face tough times, when we face hard times, we don't throw in the towel. This is it. Stuff, stuff you got, I'm not, I'm not following you anymore. I'm not believing you. No, rather, Christians must persevere. As we face tough times, we persevere. We, we turn to God in prayer. I only have you. This is all I have. 
and to perseverance, godliness. See, Christians are to be like God. That is the word godly, godliness. And to godliness, brotherly kindness. That is, Christians are to love the the body of believers. Our brothers and sisters in Christ, we must love each other. And that's how I see our church. It is one big extended family. Whether you like it or not, we're going to spend eternity together. So we better get, get it right and start loving each other, right? We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's why things like the prayer chain, some of you are on that email. What a wonderful thing that is to show how we care and love for our brothers and sisters in Christ, to pray for each other. And to brotherly kindness, what do we add? We add love. Love which sums up the Christian virtue. Love not just for the likeable, but for the unlikable. And Jesus teaches us, love even your enemies. You see, the life of a Christian, if you look at this list of virtues, it's meant to be a good life. It's meant to be a very, very good life. And you see here that a Christian life, there must be growth, spiritual growth. A genuine Christian will always be growing. If they're not growing, then they're backsliding. A genuine Christian will always be growing. And that's why Peter now goes on to say, look at verses 8 and 9. He says, if you possess these qualities that he just listed, possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. Now, what's that saying there? Well, Peter's saying something quite hard. He's actually saying there are, in a sense, two groups of Christians. He's saying there are the effective Christians, the productive Christians. And on the other hand, there are the ineffective Christians, the unproductive Christians. You see, the effective Christians, they love the word of God. They grow in their knowledge of God and his son, Jesus Christ. They grow in their understanding of the love of God for them. They grow in their understanding of the sacrifice Christ has made for them. They grow in their understanding of the reign and rule of the Lord Jesus. And so, when they grow in this understanding, they live out their life in faith. They live out their life in response. And I suspect you know who these are, the effective and Christians amongst us. They are the ones who are always loving always serving, always caring, always praying for us. They are the ones who show hospitality, who, who love with their whole heart and they do so joyfully. But yet there are also the ineffective Christians, the unproductive Christians. Now Peter says that these are the ones who are nearsighted, almost blind. You see, they've forgotten how good God has been to them. God has sent his son to die on that cross, to be butchered for you, but you've forgotten that. That is what Peter's saying. He came, he cleansed you from your sin, but you've forgotten that. You see, these are ineffective Christians, they take for granted the grace of God. They take for granted the blood of Christ shed for them. They're the lazy Christians, the idle Christians, the slack Christians. They are the consumer Christians. They enjoy the community of believers. They enjoy all of God's blessings, but they're consumers. They consume and not give. Now, when I was a younger Christian at university, my mentor, my Christian mentor, 
he taught me this, this phrase, and I still remember it. He, says, he said, we can't be just gospel receivers, but we must be gospel producers. We can't just be receivers, we must be producers. And that has still stuck in my mind. But the sad fact is, what Peter is addressing here is that there are people who are ineffective and unproductive. And that's why people who once claimed to be Christians fall away. They're ineffective and unproductive. If they're not growing, they're backsliding. But you see, it shouldn't be that way. It can't be that way. It mustn't be that way. Now, last year at a camp I spoke at, not our own church camp, another church camp, I met a young lady one night. She told me she grew up in a Christian family. She went to Sunday school, went to youth group. She went for years. But she told me that she wasn't taking her faith seriously. She told me she, she's still a Christian. She claims to be a Christian, but she doesn't look like one. She doesn't live like a Christian. Now, what do you say to someone like that who claims to be a Christian but just doesn't live like a Christian? Well, this is what I said to her. Now, I'm not suggesting that you say this, especially to someone you just met, but this is what I said. I said to her, don't be a brat. Don't be a brat in the family of God. You see, God in his great mercy, in his great graciousness, has adopted you, someone on the streets, someone who's undeserving, into his home. Into his family, he adopted you as his child. He made you an heir along with Christ. This is what God has done for you. Now, how would you expect anyone who has been adopted into a family like that should act? Well, you can't be a brat, can you? Can't you? You can't continue living your life like you were outside on the streets. You must live like you belong in the family. And so I said to her, don't be a brat in the family of God. Where she still belongs to the family of God because it's not our good works that saves us. It's our faith in Christ and God in his mercy brings us in. But when we come in, we live like we belong to the family of God. Now, this girl, I didn't know her at all, but she actually took it quite well. She took it really well, in fact. It was like a wake-up call for her to help her to see that she must take her faith seriously. If she's not growing... She's backsliding. Now, why is it so important that Peter makes, makes this point here that Christians must always be growing? Growing in our knowledge of Christ, growing in our godliness, growing in our love. Why is that so important? Well, Peter tells us here in the final two verses. He tells us that it's a matter of confirming. It's a matter of making sure that we are saved. In the end, it's a matter of our salvation. Not that our good works gets us in, not that our good works saves us, but our good works, our life of faith, our life of godliness, our growth, our progress, confirms our salvation. Have a look at the last two verses, verses 10 and 11. Peter says, Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling, that is your call to salvation, make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, what's promised to us? You will never fall and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. So how can any of us 
be 100% certain in our minds, in our hearts, that we are saved? How can we have complete certainty that we're not just kidding ourselves in our life? That we're not just fooling ourselves and fooling those around us that we are saved? You see, anyone can claim, I believe in Jesus. It's easy to say that, isn't it? I believe in Jesus, his death and his resurrection. I believe in him. That's easy to say. But how can we be certain? How can we know that our belief is real? That our belief and faith is genuine? Well, you see, real belief bears real fruit. And what are the fruits? Well, it's just what we've seen here in this passage. Fruits that that shows that we are growing in godliness, in love, we're progressing. That's the life of a genuine Christian. And so I want to ask you, think back about, think about your own life and think back a year ago, on the 19th of January 2013. Think about your life then and think about your life today, a year from then to now. Have you grown? Has there been any progress in your life? Or have you been backsliding? You know, have my faith grown? Have my goodness grown? Have my knowledge grown? Have my love grown? Have I grown? Because if I have, then if I possess these qualities in increasing measure, that's confirming. It's making sure and making clear to me and everyone around me that I am amongst God's elect, that I am amongst God's court, that I am in fact really saved. Now, an English minister, Dick Lucas, he used to be the rector at St. Helen's Bishopsgate. Dick Lucas, he says this, and it's very, very well put. He says, The evidence that we have been called and chosen will be the energy we put into making our calling and election sure. And so, if we live our life not not really caring about whether we're saved or not, not working on our godliness, not loving God, growing and progressing, well, that's probably evidence that we're not saved. The evidence that we have been caught and chosen will be the energy that we put into making our calling and election sure. And so, are you sure, are you certain that you are saved? If Christ was to return tonight, are you saved? You will be there in heaven with him. Because if you are, then your life should make that obviously clear. If you're really saved, then I should be able to see your life and see you are saved because I'm seeing progress, I'm seeing growth. But if it is not obvious to you and to anyone around you, then we have a problem, don't we? And so Peter reminds us here, make it to the end, persevere, knowing that God empowers you. God's given you that promise. Know also that the God who calls equips. And know that you who are called must continue to grow. Now, a few final words. Of course, this morning, not everyone here is a Christian. This this passage Peter wrote was directed to the Christians. And there are non-Christians amongst us. I want to say we are so thankful and grateful that you can join us at church hearing about the Lord Jesus And we want you to continue to come back to hear of the Lord Jesus and the promise he offers you, a life eternal, a life that extends beyond the grave. Make this year the year where you consider the Lord Jesus seriously. Consider his promise seriously. 
but to the rest of us, those of us who claim to be a Christian, or as we begin this year and as we look ahead in this year, let us all make every effort. Let us all be all the more eager to make our calling and election sure. You see, that is God's calling, not about a job or career. God's calling is that you, you are saved and that you persevere living the godly life so that by this time next year, there won't be any of us who no longer come to church. There won't be any of us who have fallen away, who have thrown in the towel of our faith. But let us together, this big extended church family, that by this time next year, we've made every effort so that by this time next year, we are all the more faithful. We are all the more good, all the more knowing, all the more godly, all the more loving so that even if a non-believer were to come and to observe us, to watch us, they will say, surely God is with you. Let me pray.